So church, over the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Philemon. And in case you are catching up, the book of Philemon is a letter sent from the Apostle Paul to his beloved fellow worker and partner in Christ. Philemon's slave had run away and somehow met Paul in Rome. And through Paul's discipleship, this runaway slave, Onesimus, became a Christian. But the purpose of the letter is to appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back, but not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. The whole book of Philemon is only 25 verses. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that we looked at verse 17. We looked at how Paul called Philemon his partner and how important it is that we consider godly partnerships. But this morning, I'd like to go back, back to Philemon 10. You probably wondered because... That was our verse of the day, and we had, we had done it a few weeks ago. But I want to go back, and I want to look, because this is where Paul starts his appeal to Philemon. He writes, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And I love the language that Paul uses here my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. You know, he could be writing Philemon and saying, hey, greetings, Philemon. Hey, brother, I wanted to let you know that I'm in prison here in Rome. And I ran into your slave, your runaway slave, Onesimus. But don't worry, I set him straight, and I'm going to send him back now. But that's not what Paul does. That's not who Paul is. In verse 10, in this one verse, we get a picture, a picture of a relationship that Paul had with Onesimus. He says both, he is my child. And then I became his father. This concept of a father-child relationship that Paul uses is a beautiful picture of adoption, and we looked at that this morning in our call to worship. In this one verse, we get a picture of love, of protection and leadership that a father is called to have with his children. And we could see the result of Paul's fathering of Onesimus. In verse 11 of Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And we discussed this concept of being useful a few weeks ago in this series. We discussed how slaves were not considered to be people. They were mere property or chattel, a thing, a personal possession. And we were reminded that it was Paul who took a part in saving Onesimus. He was used as an instrument of God to share the gospel 
with Onesimus, but it is God who ordained that Onesimus would be saved. Onesimus had been saved through the transforming work of Jesus Christ. He is indeed useful to you and to me. As Pastor Michael put it in that sermon, Paul was essentially telling Philemon he's useful because we're on the same team. This morning, we'll spend some time looking at this transformation of Onesimus. Because we spent a lot of time looking at the relationship between Paul and Philemon, and the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, but we don't spend much time looking at this relationship between Paul and Onesimus. What can Paul teach us from verse 10 when he says, He is my child, and I became his father? Well, let's go back all the way to the beginning of this letter. Paul starts out this letter in verse 1. He says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And then he continues in verse 2 saying, And to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and then to the church in your house. So we need to notice something here. This letter is not just to Philemon. It's to Philemon and the church in his house. How is Onesimus going to be useful to Philemon? Is Paul sending him back into servitude? Yes. But not in servitude to Philemon. In servitude to Christ. In servitude to the church in Philemon's house. We know this also because when we looked at verse 10, I mean at verse 15 and 16 a couple of weeks ago, we saw the gospel and we saw the appeal is for Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. As a beloved brother in the Lord, Paul trained and mentored Onesimus in the ways of the Lord. The scripture doesn't tell us how old Onesimus was when he met Paul in prison. And it does not tell us how much time he spent with him. But we do know that there was a transformation in Onesimus from useless to useful, from a slave to Philemon to a slave to Christ. We don't know much else about Onesimus other than his status as a slave when he met Paul. But we do know he left as a brother in the Lord and as a godly man qualified to be useful in the church. So Paul did not just evangelize to Onesimus. He stated, I became a father to him. He fathered him. He discipled him. This example of Paul is a call upon us to raise godly men properly in our homes and in the church. And we are reminded of our need for godly men and their influence all the time. All we need to do is watch the news. 
Redondo High, two blocks from here, shut down just a couple of weeks ago because kids were bringing guns to school. We see an increase in stores shutting down across the country because flash mobs ransack them. And I can go on all day. There's countless examples of this. More than just acting chaotically, there's a lack of proper discipline in our society. Instead of discipline, our society coddles. They don't punish them. They say they're just misunderstood. Don't say anything because you might offend. And if society does try to discipline them, they take the position of victims, don't they? Becoming angry and sometimes even violent. And even for those who are not acting criminally, they're acting like Onesimus before he came to Paul, running from their obligations, failing to do what is right, failing to do what they ought to do. Our society is directly influenced by a lack of godly men. Amen? But Paul provides a model for us. The model he used for the early church and for the young men that he discipled. In our scripture reading for today, we read from 1 Corinthians 4. In verse 15 of that scripture reading, Paul says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul starts out this verse by pointing out that the Corinthian church had countless guides in Christ. Other translations replace the word guide with tutor or instructor. Paul is acknowledging that there are many who could teach them in their Christian faith, but he points out that this relationship, his relationship with them is different because he continues on, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When Paul speaks of becoming a father to the Corinthians, he's referring to his special role of fathering them, spiritually mentoring and discipling them. By using the word father, he is emphasizing a depth of relationship that he has with them. He's speaking of a responsibility to care for them, to nurture them. He played a significant role in their spiritual development and their growth. And just one other thing to note, Paul highlights that the fact that he became his father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul did not father them to bring glory to himself. The way he became their father is in Christ through the gospel. It's about glorifying God through the gospel. We must always be mindful of this important fact. Our fatherhood, whether in our own home or the fatherhood in our role in the church, is always by the ordinance of God. And the calling in either situation is to glorify God and be about the gospel. 
When Paul speaks of the countless guides versus fathers, he is making a distinction. That there is a distinction between an instructor and a father. An instructor merely teaches, but a father bears a far greater responsibility. And here's a distinction. It's found in the next verse, in verse 16. In verse 16 of our reading in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is the calling of godly fatherhood, to be more than someone who just teaches, but to be someone worthy of being imitated. From verses 15 and 16 in 1 Corinthians 4, we can start to understand what Paul meant when he said of Onesimus, I became his father. We only have this one verse in the book of Philemon describing Paul's relationship with Onesimus. But where else can we see? Where else can we look to see how Paul trained Onesimus up to be a godly man? The book of Philemon does not go into this detail, but we could turn to other letters from Paul to see how he interacted with other young men. We could look at Paul's letter to Timothy and to Titus. From Paul's writings to these young men, we can get an understanding of Paul, of how Paul would have fathered Onesimus during his time with him while he was in prison. And it serves as a model for us so how does Paul disciple these young men? Listen to the words of Paul in his letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.10, he tells Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. We see here that Timothy did not just follow Paul's teaching. He knew Paul's way of life. He knew his purpose. He knew his conduct. He knew his faith, his patience, his love, and his steadfastness. Paul did not just teach Timothy. He discipled him. He mentored, mentored him. He fathered him. This is how he fathered Timothy, and this is how he fathered Onesimus. Paul spent time getting to know these young men. This is important for all of us to learn. That is the only way to do this. It just can't come only from the pulpit. Paul says, my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. But let's start with the teaching. What did Paul teach Timothy that he would have been teaching Onesimus as well? We know that he probably taught him many things. We do know one thing. He would have taught him scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. In his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training 
in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Here we see Paul giving one of the first hermeneutics lessons. First, he gives glory to God as the author of Scripture, and then he teaches how it is beneficial that the Word of God can be interpreted and used literally to teach, to rebuke, and correct, and, how, and to instruct on how to live in righteousness. And he taught them the purpose for doing so, that the man of God may be complete, a hearer and doer of the word, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is where Paul shows us the difference between teaching and mentoring, between evangelizing and discipling, between guiding and fathering. Because Paul did not just teach them scripture. He mentored these young men in how to rightly handle the word of truth themselves. Going back to Paul's list in 2 Timothy 3.10, he says, you have, however, followed my teaching. And then he says, my conduct. The only way to observe someone's conduct is to spend time with them. Timothy accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys. We could read about this in today's scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul says in verse 17, that is why I sent you, Timothy. And we see another example of this with Titus. In Galatians 2, Paul writes about taking Titus with him to Jerusalem. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions Titus multiple times as he's with him in his mission journeys. And in the letter to Philemon, we can see that Onesimus accompanied Paul on another ministry, his prison ministry. This gave Timothy, Titus, and Onesimus first-hand exposure to ministry, evangelism, and the challenges faced in spreading the gospel. But it also allowed them to observe the example of Paul's conduct. This is how Onesimus learned how to be useful. Continuing in Paul's list in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.10, he continues, You observed my aim in life. And Paul states his aim in life in Acts 20.24. There he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's goal is to finish his course. And again, I love this imagery. Imagery. When running a race, do runners plot out their own course? No. They run the course that is set for them. This is Paul in total submission to God, acknowledging God's sovereignty in his life and his aim in life to finish the course that God has set out before him and the ministry that he received from Jesus. 
It's beautiful imagery. But without observable conduct, these are just words. It's just teaching, not fathering and discipling. To father a godly man, whether in our home or in the church, we must exemplify godly manhood. Paul gives us a great example of this in his qualifications of deacons and elders. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, and if you would like to, you could turn there now. But as we read this, ask yourself, how many of these things are only observable through relationship and observation? 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In these qualifications, Paul is showing us that godly men, especially those in leadership, must have observable conduct. And with Timothy and Titus, we can see from Paul's teaching, his discipling, his fathering, it led them to become leaders in the church. But we should also note it is not Paul's fathering of these young men that qualified them for leadership in the church. Just like evangelizing does not save, yes, we're called to share the gospel, but it's God who does the saving. Raising godly men, discipled and trained, able to teach, does not guarantee their qualification for leadership. Like salvation is an act of God alone, 
Their calling into leadership is an act of God alone. The point is that whether they are called to leadership or not, all men ought to be brought to spiritual maturity. Fathered in the home and in the church with the character and integrity, ability, the ability to manage a household, hospitality, generosity, sound doctrine, servanthood, humility, all of these things depicted in the qualifications of deacons and elders are the mark of a godly man. And why is this important? This maturity into godly manhood, regardless of a calling to leadership, is essential to the unity of the church. Without maturity, the church will fall into deception and disunity. Here's Paul again, this time speaking to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, 13 through 14, Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. This passage highlights the fact that without mature manhood, we are like children, easily swayed by bad teaching and deceived by bad doctrine. And without mature manhood, we therefore will not have unity in the church. Paul knew that raising men to mature manhood was essential to the life of the church. And there's one other thing that is implied here. Because Paul tells Timothy that he has followed his example. It's not mentioned directly here, but it's implied. Because as we all know, fathering is teaching. Fathering is being an example but it is also providing correction when it is needed. We see this in many of Paul's letters. For example, in 1 Corinthians, he corrects the early church regarding divisions, moral conduct, and divisions in the church. In his letter to the Galatians, he corrected false teaching about the need to follow Jewish law. Church, this is where we must not fall short. We cannot give in to laziness or have a fear of hurting feelings. We need to follow Paul's example of discipline. We cannot coddle like the world does or make excuses by saying, well, that's just the way they are. I ask you, what if Paul did this with the early church? What if he did this with the Corinthians or with the Ephesians? Or with the Galatians. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If we are doing, going to disciple others into mature men, we cannot shy away from this principle. 
Paul wrote these letters as a friend to the church, as he said, as a father. What would be the easy thing for Paul to do? Would it not have been easier for Paul to write simple letters with words of encouragement, not calling them out in areas where correction was needed? Yes, these letters must have felt hurtful. Imagine receiving one of these letters as a member of the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, he says, I heard there's quarreling among you, brothers. Or in 1 Corinthians 14.20, when he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Paul called out the early Corinthian church. And in his second letter to them, he illustrates his understanding from this concept in Proverbs 27, 6, that these corrections are indeed painful. He feels like he is dealing wounds to them. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For I wrote to you, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Paul did not enjoy confronting the Corinthian church, but he did what he was called to do. Brethren, we must be willing to risk temporary discomfort or even conflict to provide correction because our commitment is to glorify God and to honor Christ first. These words of correction, advice, or truth might be uncomfortable to hear, but they are necessary. They were necessary for the growth and well-being of the church, and they are just as necessary for us today. We don't hold back on doing this with our own children, do we? Why do we not do it in the same body? in the same family, in an eternal family that lasts longer. Listen to more words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 as he is providing these faithful wounds. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Paul is correcting this church because of their lack of unity, reminding them that they are part of a new family, the body of Christ. And then listen to verse 26. He continues, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
Family, we cannot shrink back from providing discipline and correction in the church. We are all members of one body. And if any part of it is suffering, the whole church suffers. We know this, yet we fail in it often. Because our society is superficial and afraid of offending. And it rubs off to us, even in the church. Paul continues this concept in his letter to the Ephesians. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members, one, of one another. Again, this verse speaks about the fact that we are members of one another. This is how the body of Christ is described in Romans and to the Corinthians. Paul is saying, let's put away falsehood false unity, and speak the truth. These were letters to the churches, but I am convinced that there were some words of truth, some faithful wounds spoken to the young men that Paul was fathering. What about Onesimus? Do you think there were some uncomfortable words of truth spoken to him? Some uncomfortable words of correction? Imagine what some of these conversations between Paul and Onesimus were like when Paul told him that he should go back to Philemon, his master. I can only imagine what Onesimus would have initially responded with. You want me to do what? This is where we understand what Paul means in verse 10. When he says of Onesimus, he is my child. Because in order to receive teaching, one must be teachable. In order to receive correction, one must be humble. And that is how Paul could say of Onesimus, he is my child. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, ought not think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This message is not just for the early churches. Onesimus, Timothy, and Titus, all of us are called not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We are called to humble ourselves under the God-ordained authority of both the headship in our homes and in the church. This again provides observable conduct. When we practice humility, we teach humility. A humility essential to the raising of mature godly men. And this is why I titled this sermon, The Man, Onesimus. Yes, Paul called him his child, but we could see from his letters to the early church, in his letters to Timothy and Titus, and his letter to Philemon, that Paul was about the business of raising godly men. 
Paul's example is a call to us not to rely only on the teaching from the pulpit. We must be intentional about fathering godly men, starting in our homes and then in the church. So what is our takeaway? Godly manhood is meant to glorify Christ. Because godly manhood results in godly leadership in the home, in the church. And this is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. I'll use one final illustration of this from Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What is the result of raising godly men? The result of raising godly men is godly leadership in the home. The result of raising godly men is a church submissive to Christ. The result of raising godly men is men who love their wives. The result of raising godly men is men who provide for their families. It's men who will wash their wives in the word of God. It's men whose wives will respect their husbands. It's men who will walk in faith. It's men who will rightly handle the word of truth. It's men who are humble. It's men who will remain teachable. The result of raising godly men are men who reflect to the world the relationship between Christ and the church. Family, this is where I was going to end the message today.
But there is something else I wanted to share with you. Because we could spend a whole sermon series on the attributes of godly men and how we're called to disciple and seek mature manhood. How this is the way to model Christ to the world. And since he came to our church, it has been on the heart of Pastor Michael to start a study on this subject. And we hope to do so in the coming months. Because as we discussed today, godly manhood is foundational. It's foundational to our homes. It's foundational to the church. And it's foundational to our society as a whole. And this week, we saw three godly men to go home to be with Christ. Mark Morikawa, just a couple weeks ago, spent time on the phone with me. He spent time praying for our church, for its leadership, and encouraging me in the faith. Warren Willis had decades of gospel impact as a missionary, then as a leader in Campus Crusade for Christ, and in his own Decision Point ministry. And Pastor Cecil pastored this church for almost two decades. So I thought I would close by honoring the godly example of these men with the words that Pastor Cecil shared in an article titled, Walking by Faith. The Apostle Paul reminds us who we are, Christians, that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. It's from 2 Corinthians 5, 6. That does not mean that we in this life, at home in the body, do not enjoy the presence of Christ or are unable to enter into fellowship with him. The believer enjoys communion with his Savior in worship, prayer, and the study of his word. But while we remain here on earth, we are away from heaven, where we will worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness, with nothing of sin to cloud our joy. There we will gaze in adoring wonder, heartfelt gratitude and love into the blessed face of our Redeemer, seeking and singing of the greatness of his salvation. We are confident of this, for at a time already determined by God, we will depart from this life, be with Christ, which is far better. That's from Philippians 1.23. Then we will be absent from the body, and we will be forever present with the Lord. Until then, we must walk by faith. Those are the words of our dear Pastor Cecil, a godly example to us. 
Mike Long is going to lead us now in our closing hymn this morning, a hymn that points to the goal of raising godly men. That goal, again, is to reflect Christ in our homes, in the church, to the world, turning their eyes to Jesus.